All right. All right. Welcome to the All In Podcast, uh, where we talk about what it means to be all in in all areas of your life. And we are at the All In headquarters here just outside Nashville in Franklin, Tennessee. And I've got my good friend, Brian Yormack here. Today, we're going to be talking about what it means to be all in with your tax strategies. We know how important that is. And uh, I've got a very special guest, Brian Yormack, CPA extraordinaire and expert tax strategist. I get that out, expert tax strategist. Brian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah. Um, so I met Brian. I met. We met um, at an event at the Virgin Hotel on top of it back in, it was actually St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. I remember very vividly and uh, a good mutual friend uh, was was hosting it. And it was about 100 people there on top of the, the hotel. It was hot. And you just moved to town about a about a week before, I think. I've been there for about eight days. Yeah, and you moved in from Denver, right? At yeah. that point, yeah. Yep. And so originally from Denver, and um, had just moved in to town, and there was a bunch of entrepreneurs and realtors there, and I just remember thinking, um, man, how interesting it was. And I'd heard these words like, you know, in my pat like tax strategies and or like cost segregation and things like that, depreciation. And I thought I kind of knew, but I, because I'm an investor, but I, I really knew I needed to know more. And so I just remember kind of like, all right, tell me more, tell me more. And we followed up later. And so, um, yeah. So thanks for coming onto the show. All right. Perfect. So yeah, I mean, we met up on the top there and I remember, uh, you started telling me a little bit about how you had, uh, your, your investment, you know, down in the Florida area. And, um, the more we kind of discussed, your investment property, the more I got kind of intrigued about what your strategies were, because we, uh, we have some offices that we had done some work in, in Denver and Miami. Uh, and currently we're, we're expanding a software company into the Nashville area, um, kind of based in the accounting space. And I hadn't met almost anyone here yet. So I think you were about the fourth or fifth person that I started kind of talking to figuring out you know, where's it going to land for BAY and some of our needs as far as being able to find clientele. And, you know, our first discussion was that you had heard of it, you, you know, were aware of it, and that you really, you know, wanted, you wanted to know more. I was happy to tell you more. Within, I think, a week, we had gotten some numbers together and gone uh, over them. And at that point, you know, you signed an engagement, and you were our first client here. And, uh, you know, the numbers, speak for themselves. I'm sure we'll get into it, but, um, it's just been a joy. Yeah. Getting to meet you and your family and it's been wonderful. And so just for the listeners, you know, people know what a CPA is, but let's talk about just so people understand that, you know, you're not, you're not out there doing taxes. What, what, what really comes to light when somebody's dealing with a tax strategist is that you're, you're really needed for, and when you're doing investments, whether it's commercial, you know, cash flow producing properties, uh, how to best strategize to, to do what not pay as, as, you know, try to mitigate your tax liabilities all in the legal way to where you pay as little tax as possible. Um, and that's different, right. Than what a CPA that maybe just does your taxes who may be still really, really, um, you know, excelling at what they do and, and really knowledgeable, but it's, it's a difference, right? So talk about kind of because that's not what we're talking about, Howard. We're not talking about, you know, doing your taxes per se, uh, although that does feed into it. Um, what we're really talking about here is things that how you can mitigate your taxes 
with businesses and what are the methods the way we do that? Right. And I think that's a good line to draw when you're talking to someone who does kind of is in to someone who's in the accounting realm. There's a lot of different professions that kind of fall into that realm. So you have, if you go into a, a large, um, you know, a big four or large accounting firm right out of school, you're normally split right away into either audit or tax, right? And so within both sides of those, there's hundreds of positions and you're going to get a specialty in kind of whatever you end up spending your first couple of years doing. And the, the what we're talking about today is not what you're, definitely not your bookkeeper and probably not your, you know, fractional CFO or controller, um, though they may be able to point you in the right direction. Uh, they're not going to be able to come in and execute the work the same way an outside party would. So there's a branch called Specialized Tax Services. Uh, Price Waterhouse Cooper and some of the other ones have kind of named it that. And under the branch is going to be the tax credits, benefits, and incentives, um, also some cost recovery items. And, and those are very specific. They call them studies to kind of put a nice name on the end of them. But these, these tax credit studies are going to be uh, normally unique to the industry or unique to what you are spending the money on, whether it's R&D or green energy, uh, 45L buildings. It's going to be, that's all these people do. And so that's kind of where we come in. Uh, we have our specialty in real estate. And also, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of the um, employee retention tax credits. And and that's all we do. So we don't do any bookkeeping. Um, I try to stay away from consulting and getting into anyone's financials, though, you know, for a time, because I come from an audit background, that it was kind of how um, I would meet my clients and, and build value. But at this point, we're pretty much only doing four or five key services that are all considered STS. Okay. And so a lot of the listeners are going to be investors, as you and I, we've yeah, we know. I mean, we, we, we sometimes find ourselves, we're at the same events and there's investor mixers and what. So when these investors are investing in, uh, whether it be commercial or maybe short-term rentals and they're doing these things, um, that's where the terminology starts to come out because you start to hear cost segregation. So if you're a limited partner out there, or, you know, even a general partner, sometimes I've, we've realized that uh, that maybe they don't really know fully the implications or even the ins and outs of what makes a good cost segregation study versus a different one. So maybe uh, it would be good to describe, you know, for the investors out there, what a cost segregation study does, um, why you would need that uh, is because it, it, it relates to depreciation, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a good place to start is, you know, whenever I have my first conversation with someone, I start kind of at square one. And because, you know, to give them the, the best information we can, we have to figure out what they, what they know and maybe what they don't know. Right. So when I start talking to someone, let's just take the, um, you know, real estate as, as a bundle. When we get into real estate, the first thing I'll ask is, do you own any investment property? You know, and that's going to be uh, all the way from residential to commercial, any asset that's driving revenue in, in the course of business, whatever it may be, is going to be consider- considered an investment property. And if they say yes, then I say, you know, have you done any type of accelerated depreciation? 
And that's where I'd say maybe 60 to 70% of my conversations uh, start there. And they don't know what accelerated depreciation is. Or maybe even depreciation. So or maybe, maybe even depreciation. So maybe describe for the listeners, like, you know, because depreciation is not mean um, that the building is losing value. It's, it's, a, it's really more of a, a, a tax code terminology. And I'll describe what that may mean in, versus what, you know, someone may think the, you know, the normal definition of depreciation, meaning devaluing something. It's not that. that right? That's exactly right. Depreciation is going to be a, a tool that accountants use to take an asset and the useful life of it is going to be predetermined, assigned by the IRS. And the IRS has said, you know, this table is going to last five years. So when I buy it, I'm not going to expense the table. I'm going to depreciate it over five years. Now they have a 2,500 kind of threshold, but when you get to your larger products and properties, when you buy, let's just say a $2 million house, you don't get to expense the whole thing, right? Because uh, of depreciation and this principle that, well, you bought it, but, uh, it's going to still hold value on your balance sheet for a period of time. So to say that in an easier way, if you buy a house, the IRS states that it's going to last for 27 and a half years. And we're talking about a rental property, right? Residential. Residential. Yeah. But cash flow producing? Yep. Not something that they're living in. Not something living in. A business asset. Right. A business asset. So when you buy a house, it's going to depreciate over 27 and a half years. Mm. So let's say it's a million dollar house. Your expense for the first year would be 127th. And it's just a schedule with the same exact number. Let's say it's 4,000 and you'll have $4,000 all the way until it hits zero. Whatever the amount of the, the property is, is going to just be ticked off through this list or a depreciation schedule mm. until 27 years. And you just take the original purchase value divided by 27 and a half. And that's how much you're getting of an expense each year. And it's a tool that's very helpful so that you can see what is a business really worth because buildings are a bad example, but if you bought 50 buildings 100 years ago, are they still worth what they were when you bought them as far as the actual bricks? Yeah. Things get old, things break down, so that's why there's a useful life. This is one of the reasons that real estate is so tricky when we start to get into this with people who have not experienced it because we're saying, well, we're going to accelerate depreciation and the, the, um, the book value of the property is going to go down on the balance sheet and the property is going towards zero. And everybody goes, wait a second. The reason that I'm in real estate is because it's supposed to be appreciating. Right. I think you're, you're, missing, you're mixing up the beginning of your right. statement there. You're, right. It's appreciation. No, right. it's, it's depreciating. It's just a tax way to um, measure something's useful life and how far through the useful life it is. It's interesting, though, that the a, amount of a people good, that, a good example laptops yeah. or technology those are going to be five year and we all know that in two and a half years is this what it was when i bought it no right there it's new uh, items and making these obsolete so some items have very short useful lives those ones are considered those are long-term assets is what uh buildings are but it's all related to that and so when you hear people that you know, they're talking about paying no income tax. Mm -hmm. um, this is the way that's done a lot of the times. Is that correct? Uh, in real estate, definitely. Yeah, I so mean, this, here, is, like, this is the number one way that's done in real estate. Yeah. Um, 
historically for a long time now, cost segregation is, is not new. It's been around for a long time. And uh, there's been some, some changes in 2017 with some different percentages of accelerated depreciation as far as the bonus. But in general, when you hear someone who's in real estate and not, you know, not other businesses and a lot of uh, other things happening, if they're in real estate and they're paying zero income tax, it's good chances cost segregation is going to be the reason why. Right. Right. So let's just hop into like, what would be, um, show, what's an example of something? I mean, you can use, you know, ours or use an example of, um, of a business, uh, building or, uh, you know, maybe a rental property and maybe explain how that works, how the depreciation works and why it's beneficial. Yeah, it's a great question. So the easiest way to kind of picture depreciation is to take that word, even though it's not the same, but just interchange it with expense. Hmm. And most business owners are aware that if they have revenue, let's say it's $100,000 in revenue a year, but they also had $100,000 of expenses, they owe no taxes. And that's why everyone's trying to write things off. And these are my business deductions and my meals and entertainment. And everyone's keeping their receipts. It's this game trying to keep up with how much revenue you're making. So if I make 70, I want to try to show that I spent 70. And the chances are that eventually as you begin to do more and more revenue, um, you can't show that, that expense column at the same, uh, you know, ratio. Okay. What happens with cost segregation is again, the depreciation or the expense is accelerated. So, you know, let's say that you get uh, $200,000 in an expense from our work, but you're still making a hundred. Well, now you've got two years of an expense column and it does have a very favorable carry forward period. It's 20 years. So if you don't use it by then, you're making very little money. But if if we give you a uh, $200,000 deduction, it would take you until you made uh, you know, $200,001 before you start paying income tax on that. And you have to figure, you know, you're going to have other business expenses that are going to make that 200000 kind of keep going up. But it's a lump sum expense given at the beginning of somebody's operations or when the asset is placed in service. And when that asset's placed in service, it starts to make revenue. And until you meet your expense columns, you don't pay any income tax. Right. And so... I mean, if we're in a room full of investors that are uh, fixing flippers or wholesalers or buy and hold, <clears throat> and you, sh- you ask for a show of hands, I mean, I think a lot of those people will, will raise their hand, if maybe 75%. Mm-hmm. But then, and, and maybe I would have been in that group, right? Because I've heard of it because I was a, you know, a, a passive investor, um, limited partner. Uh, and so the, 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 the uh, general partners, the GPs were the ones taking care of the cost segregation studies. And so, you know, you're kind of on the outside, you hear it's done. But now that, you know, so many investors are, are, are out there doing business, you know, what I think you, you kind of see is that people, you know, they think they know about it and they may even have someone who's doing the cost segregation study. But it, like a lot of things in life, I think what you find is there's a big variance between uh, a good one and a really good one, or you're not so good. So oh, yeah. in other words, just like I think doctors and uh, attorneys, anything in the field, you're going to have a really a, a, a range, you know, um, of, of quality. And so uh, tell people why uh, and how they can determine, you know, why it's important to have a good, you know, the, the best, 
or something really good and why, why it's probably going to cost more maybe i don't know but like why, why would they need that and um what's the way that they can vet you know someone who's doing that because a lot of times these people have like you know like a tax preparer or something like that and they kind of have someone that does that for them hmm. and but they're not really involved in it and so i think as for me as i've gotten you know more and more invested in more deals I'm starting to realize that the bigger the deals are, the obviously the more important the cost segregation study mm-hmm. is because it's just that much more savings that you that you get. And um, you know, so how how do how would the average investor who's out there trying, how would they know what to do to to seek to seek someone that's you know that's really good at cost seg versus maybe what they've been dealing with? How do they know what's good? I mean, you're going to hate my answer, but it's impossible, right, yeah. for them. On the, uh, off, at the just, beginning, yes. Yeah, right no right at the beginning, because mm-hmm. the way that looks is if you can't understand accounting in the sense that you already have a bookkeeper and, and can't quite grasp everything going on there, the, the truth is you're never going to be able, no matter how pretty the PDF <laughs> deliverable is at the end of it, to be able to go through um, and redline and, and have mm-hmm. a discussion, right? And so there's a couple of ways that you could go in and try to protect yourself from, you know, getting substandard work. Now, I would say that most uh, of these firms are going to do, you know, at least legal work where it's, you know, I've ran to a lot of people in my industry that are wonderful people, but there is a big difference. And we've seen sometimes, you know, 40, 50% differences between what can be substantiated and received versus what was originally kind of handed to a client. So we recently had a client with about a $550,000 deduction. After going through it, we found just south of a million, right? And, and that's it's know, a big sh- difference. It's shame, a shame on them, yeah. right? I mean, right. it's almost double. And this is a, a $3.2 million property. And, you know, so it's not like we're doing a $72 million hotel. So, you know, and the numbers stay the same. So one interesting thing about cost seg, if I can get, Let's call it 25 is a good estimate because it changes between heavy manufacturing and warehouses and storage spaces. They all kind of have each one's like its own little industry and what you can expect as far as what can be accelerated. Um, But on short term rental, which is what this is, I knew the number was low and and we kind of went into it. And and this is a a good friend of mine. He said, would you mind reviewing it? And, uh, you know, they had they had taken a lot, but they had left a lot on the table. Mm. And it's interesting because. You know, you have to take your tax bracket when you're figuring out what the deduction means to you. So if uh, um, I'm going to receive $100,000, it's worth of a deduction from a cost seg study, $100,000. It's only worth $37,000 of cash if I'm at a 37% bracket. Right. If I'm at a 20% bracket, it's only worth 20000 mm-hmm. So there's kind of this, there, there's so many moving parts that if you don't have someone consulting you, there's just, it's just too much and you're not going to be able to keep up with it. But to, to answer your question specifically, that is actually one of the things that BAY stepped in and has been doing is what's called a second tiered partner review yeah. is what I'm kind of terming it where we go out and we, we have these clients and then we end up bringing in a cost seg team. We have various uh, providers that we like and have worked with at this point. Mm-hmm. When they finish the work, it doesn't get handed to the client it gets handed to us. And then we have a level of sophistication because we have people who have been doing this for, you know, 20 years that are able to then look at that work and have that level outside their firm and be the voice of reason for the client. 
And that's kind of where we sit. And we actually sit there in all of our services where somebody else is actually doing what I would consider compiling. And then we'll do a second tier because there's, there's a partner there too who's going to be reviewing it. Mm. Then when the partner is done and is ready to sign off or send it our way, we'll pretty much redo the whole thing using their work. Uh, and, and we go back to the client and ask additional questions that maybe they didn't ask. Um, another really interesting one, we had a client that had about $130,000 deck. Gorgeous house right on the ocean. The deck went down, down like three or four steps. This huge sprawling deck. Well, they didn't take any of it. And, and we'll get to uh, what cost seg is in a moment. But the idea is the study didn't capture any of it because it was connected to the house. Yeah. So these guys just said, well, there's $110,000 that we can't take as a short-lived asset. We went and took a look and the house is, you know, joined with these two little wooden wooden beams. And I said, you know, hey, why don't we get a developer out here and figure out what it would be? Cost them $6,000 to redo the structure a little bit to get $110,000 worth of a deduction. So that's a net yeah. of, you know, again, you have to take them at 37. So 37K and he spent about 10K. Right. So it's a $22,000 day of work. Right. So there's, there's just ways you can be aware of everything going on. And really, if you, if you want to be as protected as you can, the best way to do that is to be like you were. Go to this job site, ask questions, and follow up with different groups. Bring in other people and ask what they think of the study when it's done. You know, be an advocate. If I'm putting uh, $1.5 million into a property, I'm not trusting anyone's going to do it the way I want it. Right. You know, and you have to say, just because he's a CPA or just because he's, he's a lawyer, doesn't mean that I can't ask him questions and get nitty gritty and down the dirt. And then if I don't, you know, trust everything that's being said, I'm circling back and asking someone the same questions. So, you know, advocating for yourself is, is kind of my answer. And yeah. uh, obviously it's very beneficial to have a referral from someone who's great because yeah. there are a lot of people in our industry that, you know, their, their job is to do 30 or 40 cost segs a week. You are not special. Bigger mm -hmm. firms have mm -hmm. that issue. You know, having been at one, of course you want to do a great job for everyone, but good enough is out the door. Yeah. Very common. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what kind of drew me is, um, I mean, I saw this as something, one of the few things in life where um, with a little bit of extra uh, work or a little extra you know, digging, you can really get a big payoff. Like, in other words, if you really have a really great cost seg done, the proper way, mm -hmm. um, and we can get into that because sometimes people do hodgepodge. I mean, like... Um, ones and we could talk about that, but I, I really noticed that there was a huge difference and there was a lot of money being left on the table. Well, no one wants to leave money on the table, no matter who you are. And so I think just as, you know, business owners, consumers, entrepreneurs, um, you know, real estate people, you know, all of these investors, everybody, you know, they want to, to maximize their returns. And part of that is factored in with the taxes. So if you're leaving money on the table because your tax strategy is bad, or you just had, you know, kind of with the status quo, mm -hmm. when maybe you could have spent a little bit more, perhaps, uh, to get a little bit more work, but then maybe it's twice the deduction as you described earlier, then that's where I think the light went off for me, because I realized that, okay, this is really just about saving money, but I can totally see there's a big difference. Like for number one, uh, I'd been an investor for a while, but I really hadn't really had someone talk to me or explain. It was just all kind of done. Mm -hmm. But once you start to dig in, I really think you start to see that um, 
there's a difference that, hey, you ask questions and sometimes it seems like some of these folks that do the, the cost segs, you know, they're not, they're just not at the level that you would expect. Uh, and, and that's okay. But I think if you're, maybe they've just been doing, you know, smaller buildings, smaller things like that. Uh, and they're just kind of in there. It's just like any, any craft, I guess, you know, like loan officers, uh, real estate agents, you know, they have, you know, you have people that are very, you know, kind of experienced, been doing it, but they just kind of never push through a certain level. And, you know, from what I've observed, I mean, you guys, I mean, you know, you, you and your team really, really high level. I mean, so, and when I say this guys, I mean, you know, we've been to, uh, you know, in boxes, at soccer games, at hotel years, and these, you know, these guys have owned hotels and their families for years. And, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a conversation to where, they're surprised that their CFO or their, their, their accountant that they either a didn't know about cost seg, which is unfathomable when you own a, a hotel uh, or B it's just yeah, they're not, they're, $50 they're, million dollars worth of hotels yeah. and they've never heard of it is yeah, that's pretty getting pretty, bad. that's getting a little, little out there. Yeah. Or maybe they know about it. They just don't know enough. And mm-hmm. they has been disconnected from the whole process because it's just been done for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, I just find that fascinating. And that's really what kind of drew me. So um, any thoughts on that? I mean, yeah, I think it's, that's, it's unfortunate. I hope that this is on because it's like, you know, if people aren't hearing what we're saying, we're handing people probably two to three years on average of free operating as far as taxable li- liabilities. Yeah income tax liability. And the most interesting thing, Mark, is when you start to really get into this, it is something that's going to be used on almost every transaction at the higher level. So, you know, if you're doing a 30 million plus uh, build, cost seg isn't like, hey, let's go ahead and see if this makes sense. I mean, every single transaction does it just like 1031ing out of the backside. But for some reason, and and I, to talk to kind of your, your point there, I think that a lot of these firms are, um, doing great work, just like McDonald's does. Hmm. It's an assembly line. So someone will go out and do the work and they pass it to the next person and they pass it to the next person. And there's about four or five people who all do their line, kind of like title. I mean, that, that's a very common model. But the problem with that is if I'm now finishing out some of the tie outs for the substantiation on the back end, and I think of something that I saw on the front end, hmm. there's no way to connect those dots because I'm no longer in charge of the project uh, underneath one of these larger firms right. or do, some of these other firms. And that's, that's, again, it's fine because, you know, if uh, you're going to end up buying a cost seg and you couldn't vet them anyway, you're never going to know the difference. But we come in and, you know, we really do turn over every stone. And the goal for us, I mean, full disclosure, cost seg is a loss leader for us. Cost seg is not how our company makes the majority of our money. So we do this killer job with the cost seg. Everyone's super thrilled with the, the, you know, deduction that we provide. And then we get to move on to selling some of our, you know, more margin services. Mm. We've got research and development tax credits that are very lucrative to us, our clients. Uh, those are wonderful, but you're not going to be able to sit with somebody at, in a board, mm. boardroom and have these discussions. So cost seg is kind of for the masses. And we've realized we get to go out, meet a lot more people when that's what we're talking about. You know, it narrows it down if I say, do you own a company that is building in-house material that's considered new and innovative? Yeah. I mean, about 90% of the, maybe more of the room goes no, right? But if I can say to people, do you have an investment property? Mm-hmm. And so that's how we found ourselves in this space. And I'll be honest, cost seg is not very complicated. 
I mean, it's a rinse and repeat formula and it's getting in there and being willing to do the work, yeah. ask the questions. I mean, going to the developers and asking for some of their uh, you know, actual build documents, nobody does it. I have not ran into many companies that are going, you know what, I think this is a higher end build than where we ended up with our purchase price allocation. Let's go ahead and see if we can get our client an extra $150,000 for a 20 minute email. Right. And let's follow up three times. It's just, I don't know why it's not there. Right. Well, I think, I think it'd be good to maybe illustrate for those, uh, for those listeners, uh, or th those that are watching, you know, what it looks like. So why don't we, um, you know, I think, uh, maybe just talk, take something like, you know, a million dollar property or mm -hmm. something like that. Maybe it's a second home because, you know, in this area, a lot of people have homes at the beach um, or maybe they own uh, maybe even some commercial, like a piece of a commercial, but, but maybe explain if you want to go to the whiteboard and just kind of maybe explain kind of way that would work. All right, Mark. So we're going to get into kind of the basic principles of what is cost segregation, right? We've been kind of having this conversation and I think that the easiest way for somebody who really wants to start to understand it is with drawings and pictures. Because at the end of the day, our work, even though it gets to be a little in the weeds, is a very simplistic approach to spreading your building or your purchase out into multiple buckets. So this is a building, right? It's gonna be sitting on a piece of land and you're going to pay, let's just say, a million dollars for it. Now, when you purchase this cash flow producing property, right? This is not an investment property. Investment property cash, only. Cash flow producing, God willing. Investment property, things Can't are going to be their well. primary residence. Exactly. Exactly. So you, you purchase this, but let's just go ahead and we've got these different kind of time periods here, right? And you've got your different years. And so we've got kind of uh, some different scenarios. And I want to go through actually three separate CPAs at different kind of levels of sophistication and what happens, right? So let's just say, you know, not to say mom and pop is lowest, but mom and pop CPA, right? And they, uh, you know, are part of a team or whatever the case where this person buys a $1 million property, they may take that entire thing and put it on the balance sheet. So that's going to be 1 million and they're going to divide that by 27 and a half years, right? And they're going to end up depreciating or expensing that over that period. Well, that's already wrong. And yes, we see that a lot, all up and down the scale of sophistication, uh, but not as much as you would think when you start to get into maybe the two to $5 million range, but land is not depreciable. So right off the bat, you need to take this land out. So let's say that this is $300,000 worth of land that is sitting on. So right off, right off the bat, you got to take the 1 million minus 300,000, right? So that's 700,000. Now we've got $700,000 in this, the value of the actual building, and then the items that are sitting on top of the land. Because it's gonna be, you know, the building itself, but if you have a parking lot, pavers, pools, whatever it may be outside, those are also business assets, okay? Currently, the, the second tier account is going to say, okay, I removed my, my land and now I've got this 700000 and hopefully they're pretty good. And they say, I've also removed my FF&E or furnitures, fixtures, and equipment. And that's going to be all the stuff that when you opened up the door, <laughs> you walked in there, right? So that's going to be like your couches, 
your TVs, your tables, anything that you can pretty much just lift up and walk off with. Most accountants are very well aware that those are short-lived assets. But a pool, a pool and a pool heater, things like that on the outside? A also... pool heater, yeah, things like that cool. on the outside. Most of that, again, if the accountant understands what FF&E is, they will expense that immediately, which, you know, depending on what it is and all the rest, that's, that's done right. So let's say FF&E pulls another 100K out of this, right? So now your balance sheet for this purchase is still showing as 600K. And, and this is really your basis is what we're talking about, right? Is this, the, is this where the word basis comes in when you get to the 600K there? 600K would be your basis right. because you've expensed out a portion of your basis, right. which we can get into as we start to get into when you sell it, if it's a gain, depreciation recapture, right. these other elements that are important to know. But as we kind of walk through just the transaction on day one, right? This is kind of what your, your building is made up of is kind of being split out. So now we've got the original purchase is no longer showing. This here is land, right? And then this piece here is going to be F, F, and E, right? And so this here is now your building, okay? So now you've got this $600,000 building sitting on your balance sheet. And the idea is you don't want to wait 27 and a half years to get $600,000 back. Yes, you get a portion every year, the depreciation concept we've covered. But what you would like, ideally, would you want to expense $600,000 today? I think I would. Yeah, I think I would do. I think I would take that any way, shape, or form I could. They don't let you. So what they do say is, okay, here's what's left in the building. But if you have a cost segregation team come in, kind of this tier three CPA in this particular field or a specialist, uh, you know, as we call ourselves, sometimes you'll hear engineer or whatever the case is, but it, it's a different term than just a CPA is going to be that they're a cost seg specialist, whatever it might be, they're going to come in and say, okay, we're going to actually either um, rebuild the house in, uh, you know, kind of an Excel spreadsheet type of situation, whatever it may be, and go through and figure out exactly what is worth what throughout the entire property. So they're going to look for your invoices for the pool. They're going to be looking at the plumbing, electrical, uh, you know, all of your cabinets above, below cabinets, the countertops, all of that. And what they're going to do is they're going to take this 600 and they're going to build something over here called a fixed asset ledger. And that fixed asset ledger is still going to have the building itself. Maybe that's now worth 400K, right? And then it's going to have all these little line items, pretty specific. I mean, it's going to say like countertop, kitchen. Fixed assets, like things that are affixed, affixed to the property. Yeah, a fixed, a fixed asset is like a physical asset, yeah. and you've got long-term, short-term. This one here, and that's just going to be for useful life again. This one here is going to be long-term, so LTA, long-term asset. All the rest of this, for the most part, is going to be called a short-term asset. And now we're kind of getting into the magic of what, cost seg is because once you have this list, you can say, okay, we have 200,000, right? Left over. That's from our 600 basis. Back up, wipe all that. Cause we've got a million three, seven gives us 600, two, four, two. No, I'm right on par. Let me fly baby. So the 200,000 is going to be, uh, you know, now taken as 
a depreciation expense. And what's the 200 again? The 200 is going to be all of that electrical, the plumbing, whatever we can find that's considered a short-lived asset. We're going to you know, break it into different pools. And that, that's a good question. What's the 400 then? It's five, seven, and 15-year assets. The 400 is the actual building. Okay. That's after you take out the land and so you have the, the land you value. Have a million you take the land out of 300 gives you 700k then you take the ff and e of 100k you have 600 in the building but of that 600 400 of it is the studs the actual frame okay the the foundation right. all the rest of that then 200 is going to go into the rest of the short life assets okay and that 200 is where our work comes in where we would then say that you can take a $200,000 expense in that year. So on a million dollar property, this would be, you know, 20%, which is a, a, a decent cost seg study. We see between 20 and 30 is, is pretty normal in the uh, residential real estate area uh, for short-term short rentals. And so if we give you $200,000 of an additional expense on a million dollar property, let's say it makes $100,000 per year. In revenue. In revenue. The property. That's right. Net. Net. Let's do it net because at that point, that's what you would have had to pay taxes on. Yeah. Let me show you what that looks like. So $100,000 in taxes generated, if we're following along at home, for um, which would really flow over to your Schedule E is what we're referring to here, right? Yeah. it's We're going to have something that we're kind of running into with, with passive versus active. Um, but an investment property is going to generate what's called passive income. And these deductions are going to be called passive losses. So you cannot, barring a couple of um, reasons that you could, such as if you're a real estate professional, which, you know, feel free to look up what it takes to be a real estate professional. It's, uh, it's not hard. It's just a amount of time and effort spent per year. Uh, some people may be a real estate professional without knowing, but let's just say that they're not for this. Uh, that passive loss can only set off the passive income or the income from these uh, properties that you are not acting. Can't offset W-2 income. Cannot offset W-2 income. So we're only talking about offsetting income from that property or maybe another one, which we can get into other scheduled right. income. That's exactly right. So to show that in a little bit of, a, of an illustration, right, we've got this revenue here. And we'll say it's uh, 50,000. And then we have this expense that you would normally have each year of 25K. And that's a pretty normal looking business, you know, maybe 50% margins. And that's not bad. All we've done, this is your expense, is we've taken this column and given you a big year one expense. And now, what that does is allows you to run for, you know, here's another, let's say that this expense here is 75K. That makes it so that for the first year, you'll pay zero taxes. Then you still have 50K left over of an expense. The next year, you've got 50K in revenue. Maybe it went up, but for our example, you'll pay one more year of zero in taxes. And then when you get to this year, if you make 50K, you know, you'd pay taxes on that. Right. And so what the strategy does is it allows people uh, a few years of breathing room because the largest line item for most companies is taxes. It's taxes. 
the largest single line item for most companies is there. We're particularly in their first year or so, right? And when we say companies, when you're when you're running um, an Airbnb and, and say you have a million dollar house, um, that's an Airbnb or seven fiftieth house. That's I mean that's we're it's talking an, about that's the same an entity. Thing. It's that's an a entity. company. It's yeah, I, I see that as its own business, and that's why you know a lot of people put them into their own LLCs. But that's exactly what I picture when I say you know your company and its revenue. I'm talking about that property and that property's revenue is generating. So, and you brought up an interesting point I actually want to, I want to cover as well, which is if you can cost seg one item, it just drops into a pool or it rolls up is a term you'll hear, hear a lot when it comes to taxes because of the different forms and the way they impact one another. But let's just say that we've got property A, B, and C Right, and each one makes, uh, let's say, thirty thousand in revenue. So you've got a total of ninety k, and we come in and we cost say just C, and we give you a hundred thousand in an expense. That hundred thousand, the ninety rolls up and hits it, and it would be where you'd have ten thousand for year two again. This is year two. You'd have a carry forward of, of 10000 10, So explain what you just did there. So you've got a $100,000 deduction. You've got three separate properties, each bring in thirty. So you can actually roll up the other A, B, and, a and B to the deduction and use that up. So am I, if I'm saying that right, so you're, you're able to use the spread that one hundred k over other properties. And so now... Uh, you've not paid income tax on A, B, or C, and you still got 10000 left over for the following year to apply towards one of those as That's well. That's right. That's exactly That's right. That's a beautiful thing. Do you guys understand that? That is, that is the way that wealthy people avoid paying income tax. So when you hear people say, I paid no taxes, or they paid very little taxes, it's oftentimes because they own buildings that have, De- that they are depreciating per the tax code. And the building is actually a business that's running. It's providing income for other people, perhaps. Um, you know, it's providing jobs. Uh, so the that's why I think it's important to understand that it's not that people aren't paying taxes. It's that they're paying taxes in other ways, but they're mitigating the tax on this particular line item on their on their. They're they're in a growth phase. So almost all of our tax breaks are built off a growth phase. If somebody didn't pay taxes and they're not growing, they will definitely eventually end up paying taxes, you know, or dying and passing the basis off to the next generation. That's a different conversation. For this one here, this is the easiest way to explain why people who are ultra wealthy may still be paying no tax. Got it. So we've got, you know, your million dollar purchase, and let's say each one of these is every three years. You've got your million dollar purchase, and you know, maybe you get two hundred and fifty k in deduction or expense of an. This is going to be my expense down here. That's your cost sex study. It was done. Right, we got you two fifty, and then we'll have our rev up here. Okay, revenue. So, and you've got, let's just say, a hundred k of revenue, right? So that's offset. Then in three years, you've got a fifty thousand because now you've had revenue times three which is going to be a hundred cat or sorry three hundred thousand 
and this is totally used up. So now you've got a, a $50,000 RAV that you're going to pay taxes on for, for tax purposes. Well, what they'll do is they'll just go buy another building. Yeah. And they'll just say, okay, well, I've had three years of operating. Everything's gone great. I haven't paid any taxes. Do you think I have more cash flow? <laughs> you know, all that, that 37% I would have spent, all of a sudden it's in my pocket. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to reinvest, right? I'm going to leverage again. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to buy another building. Well, the numbers stay the same. So now we've got 500000 of an expense, and this one's making, uh, you know, let's say 200 okay, right? And, and the model, it just keeps happening. Into the third year, you'd be out of this. So you come here. Now you're making 300 k a year, but you're also still getting the uh, million dollars in the break. And you can just see that happens over and over and over. And eventually, just to show you as it gets huge, you end up buying, you know, a hundred million dollar property. And, you know, maybe you and your two partners, whatever the case is, you're going to have this huge, you know, $15 million expense. And it's just going to keep offsetting all of these revenues from all of these other properties. You won't be paying tax on them. And so what happens, I think a lot of times, right, is, is when these roll up and there's no more expense to be taken on, say, on property one, do you, I think what a lot of investors do end up is selling at that point, right? In 1031 exchanging to another property. Am I, am I correct on that? Yeah. Two, two good things to think about with that is that uh, an old building to someone else is still a new building to you. So your business's assets, if you purchase a building and it was built in 1922, it's a year yeah, you, one asset yeah. for you. Right. Right. And so there's no like, well, that one's already been used up. There's no cost seg to be had. The second thing is I call it front end finished. And when a, uh, a property is front end finished, you need to take a good hard look at how that's going to affect the uh, cash flow statement. So on the cash flow statement and also the depreciation, you still get some, but it's going to be much, much less because we've taken all of this front loaded. Uh, most people are, are going to want to do the analysis in the year two, year three, when that's done, unless if that property is just a cash cow or a crown jewel, two terms we use. So the first one is like a very high margin revenue earning, uh, asset, or someone loves it. It's in their favorite town on their favorite street. And it's got their favorite Italian restaurant in the basement or something. They're never selling, right? It's a crown jewel for them. Those are the only two reasons that even if, um, you know, it's past the front end finished, you might still hold it. There's, there's some other strategies, but in general, when something is kind of through its accelerated depreciation, and if you could get another, you know, even an identical, but most, most of the time you have more capital at that point, but even if you could have an A that you own or the B, and they're both $1.5 million properties, right? Why wouldn't you now just switch to this one, sell this one, 1031, so you're not paying any taxes coming out. Now you've got a brand new property with another $300,000 of runway uh, tax-free. It's, it's a pretty hard decision to hold a property past the front end finished. All right, so I thought that was amazing. I mean, so it really brings it home. And I know we kind of went down a deep dive. And so for some people, you know, maybe it's it's a little technical, but I think for the for the investors out there, they know and they're following along. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what we're trying to say here is 
you know, these types of things are super important to have some, when you wouldn't go to an eye doctor and just go, you know, uh, how's my heart? Yeah. How's my heart or whatever. <laughs> you wouldn't go to a bargain person, you know? Yeah. Um, and you want someone who's, who's, who's highly knowledgeable. And so even though maybe all of us in the audience don't really understand a hundred percent of what you just whiteboarded, you know, ultimately you just need, you know, it's like you need a team, you know, and you want to have the dream team the best, right? Yeah. And so, you know, hopefully we've illustrated today and brought some value to you guys. Um, and, you know, I want to thank you, Brian, for, for coming on and uh, be sure to hit the like and subscribe button. And uh, we're going to have Brian on again because, you know, there's other things that you save people money on, uh, the business owners with tax credits, employee retention, and that sort of thing. And, and some of these are going away, possibly, right? Definitely. Uh, and that's, that's important for people to understand. Yeah, that. they're, they're definitely going away. So. so in other words, these are, these are tax uh, deductions that are in place with a current tax code, current tax law that oftentimes depends on which administration, uh, whether it's Democrat or Republican that gets in, right? Oftentimes is when it changes and maybe they're, they're less restrictive or more restrictive. Is that absolutely. That, yeah. So yeah, we, we saw a lot of very favorable, um, you know, commercial and residential real estates under Donald Trump. Not a lot of negative necessarily under the current administration, but um, what will be going away, you know, depreciation is going to have their bonus percentage changing. Not enough there to uh, really warrant uh, fear and, and a discussion around getting them all done right now. Uh, R&D has been established for a very long time, and that's kind of always on the chopping block, uh, as is everything. So, you know, if I need to learn a couple of new ones, I will. But those two um, are, are pretty tried and true. The one that's definitely going to be going away is the employee retention tax credit. Uh, I have kind of started to call it the third PPP, just to give people an idea. There's a timeline. If you had employees during 2019 and you yeah. were impacted by the pandemic, you've got to get on these. Uh, we're handing, you know, pretty much checks out from the government, which I've never received a check from the government besides the stimulus. Um, this is a very rare credit that's being, uh, you know, pushed through from CPAs and payroll companies uh, because the PPP had the intermediary of the um, the banks mm. kind of helping facilitate, you know, Wells Fargo puts up on their site, click here, there's all this advertisement. Well, the ERC, the IRS is not advertising these. And unfortunately, it's such a cash grab. You've got people coming out of the woodworks and subways at night saying, hey, you need those ERCs. I'm telling you, the ERC is very, very lucrative. If you've uh, kind of been annoyed by all the times you've been text pinged, don't know where to go, how to get them. Because people are getting 800, I get these calls, these 800 numbers saying, uh, hey, you've, you're eligible for the employee retention tax credit. And so, um, yeah, I think that's what you're referring to, right? There's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot of 800 numbers out there. Scams. Because um, it is available, at least for now. And so we'll have you come on another time to talk about that because that's another amazing uh, way that people are able to mitigate taxes. Even these are actually credits we're talking about on mm -hmm. the employee yeah. retention tax dollar rate. For so, dollar. so how, how do you should people? So obviously uh, guys, if you want um, my team, uh, highly recommends Brian and his team at Bay uh, specialized tax services, B-A-Y specialized tax services. And if you would like to uh, connect with Brian and his team, uh, you can you can DM me, uh, drop a note here. There's also, if you can look on the board there, Brian's um, 
his Instagram handle. And again, Brian, thank you yeah. so much for being here. Put, put me up in the bro- bottom right. That's B your Mac. B uh, your you Mac. me on that. It's uh, it's Bay Tax. Um, we're excited, man. We're getting out here and we're helping a lot of people. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. And guys, we'll see you next time here on the All In Podcast.